Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Growing up, history would have been for many of us something that, even if interesting, still felt quite remote. Its subjects separated from us by the barriers of time and geography, but also those of class, gender, sexuality, race. Mainstream history, especially as it's taught in school, is often too leaden to leap from the page, heavy as it still is with all the titles and regalia of nobility. But of course this is only part of the picture. History doesn't exist in a silo, and it's hardly remote if you know where to look. With the prevalence now of people's history or history from below, we have a subject that lives and breathes, and not just in books, but in the architecture around us, the places we meet, and the social movements that we build. Nowhere is this intersection of history with geography and with politics more keenly perceptible than right here in London. A little over four years ago, Pluto published the first edition of David Rosenberg's Rebel Footprints, a guide to uncovering London's radical history. The book brought to life a century of struggles, from the Chartist movement to the international brigades, with each chapter featuring a map and a self-guided walking tour. This year we've published a new edition of the book, and although Rebel Footprints doesn't go beyond the 30s, it speaks to the London of 2019 more than ever, as Ash Sarkar writes in the foreword. One of the new chapters includes a social commentator's disparaging quote about the 19th century slums in Bethnal Green and Shoreditch. Industry is the exception, robbery is the rule. With rents for a one-bedroom flat costing around £2,000 a month on Boundary Street in 2018, the landlord class have certainly kept the spirit of old nickel alive. But, as Rebel Footprints reminds the reader at each turn, London isn't just the product of scams and exploitation, but of collective struggle too. The book, she writes, isn't a mere guided tour of London's curios. It's the basis of a radical project in its own right. It's a call to walk the streets and learn their histories so that we might just one day run this city. Well, we're very lucky to be joined in the studio today by two people whose work uncovers and celebrates the individuals, communities and movements that have shaped the city. David Rosenberg, an educator, writer, tour guide and, of course, author of Rebel Footprints. And Dan Glass, an award-winning activist, mentor, performer and writer who founded Queer Tours of London in 2017. So thanks to you both for coming on the mm. show. Um, I'm really pleased that you're both here because, firstly, the summer seems like the perfect time to talk about walking tours, mm -hmm. but also mm. because Rebel Footprints doesn't really go beyond the Second World War that much. And one thing that's really exciting about the Queer Tours of London is the sense of continuity with, I guess, a more recent past, a more recent history, mm -hmm. and, of course, the focus on the LGBT community as well. Um, but before we get into that, David, I wonder if first... Maybe you can give our listeners a sense of your own journey and a bit of background to how you came to write Rebel Footprints in the first place. Yeah. Well, I, I think in a way it goes back to when I was about um, 16, 17 years old in that my family had come from the East End of London. My grandparents were child immigrants there. My mum grew up and worked there. My dad grew up in the equivalent of the East End, but in Toronto. But on our sixth move we'd finally reached the the suburbia we'd reached the promised land of Ilford and um, when I was 16 I wanted to go out with my friends at the weekend I needed some money um, my parents weren't that brilliant with pocket money and I knew I had to get a weekend job because I was still at school and a lot of my Jewish friends had uncles and aunts with stalls in, in the market at Petticoat Lane but I didn't um, but my mum did have a cousin who had a warehouse just behind there. So she phoned him up and encouraged him to take on an extra worker on a Sunday morning. That was me. So I spent my Sunday mornings from very early in the morning to about two o'clock in the afternoon um, working in this warehouse. And then I used to meet up with my friends who were working on their uncles and aunts market stalls in Petticoat Lane. And then we'd spend a couple of hours wandering around these streets where we knew that our families had kind of walked those streets for many, many years. And that's kind of how I physically got to know the East End. And the East End was the first manufacturing area of London. A lot of the struggles that took place in London happened there first because of that. And so in some ways it's, it's a particularly interesting place and I think it's five out of the 11 chapters in Rebel Footprints relate to that. So that was getting to know the physical streets of the East End. But I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in social history. And following that through in the early 1980s, 
two things really. I was I was a van driver delivering radical books around London, getting to know all these sort of places. And also I took some time out to do a part-time further degree in sociology of race relations. And I did a dissertation about anti-fascism in the East End um, within that. And around that time, you know, I, I just kind of felt I was acquiring a lot of this history, which I could mix in with sort of family and community history. And then I went on the most fantastic walk with a guy called Bill Fishman. And Bill Fishman was the pioneer of walking tours of the East End. He died a few years ago. I wrote his obituary in The Guardian. And when I went on one of his walks in must have been about 1984, it was amazing. It was like all these ghosts were coming to life of these radicals who did the most amazing things. And we walked in the places where they did them. In a way, that was the origins of it. And then some years later, I found myself sort of following literally in his footsteps. That's great. And you have been doing these tours now for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, in a systematic way since 2007. But before that, in the 1990s, I remember it started when I didn't even have a planned walk, but I was involved in some campaign or other, and I cannot remember which one, but it needed to raise 150 quid and they wanted to do something a bit more interesting than a quiz night or some with a raffle. And so I said, how about if I do an East End walk? And we set a minimum price. And if people can give more than that if they want, but whatever comes in goes to that campaign. And that's how it happened. Uh, we made the money that we needed. And every few months I was doing these East End walks for various campaigns that I liked. And then I realised how much I enjoyed doing this more than my day job. Mm. And uh, so I was cutting down my days in my day job as a teacher and starting to do the walks in a systematic way from, from 2007. And then when I'd got quite a lot of walks under my belt, well, I was encouraged by Pluto Press to think about a publishing project. And that's, uh, that was Rebel Footprints, really. So the book covers mainly, I suppose it's a century, give or take, from the 1830s to the 1930s. What's the kind of rationale or the significance between that starting and end point? <laughs> yeah, well, the first edition does that. The second edition actually goes back a bit further. But when I've done talks in bookshops and libraries about this, uh, people have asked, why did you stop in the 1930s? And I said, well, the cynical answer is that there's not many people around who will say, that's wrong, and I can I remember it. <laughs> um, but the, uh, but the, the, the more serious answer is that actually, if you look at those struggles between about the 1830s and 1930s, they kind of fit together like a jigsaw. They're around democracy, rights, rights, free speech, about fighting for education, fighting for a health service, all those kinds of things, fighting for women's votes. And they kind of dovetail together really easily. The Second World War was such a kind of watershed and such a dislocation. And if you look at the politics, political struggles in the period afterwards, they're just as important, but much more eclectic, mm. much more like sort of asteroids in space that sometimes collide with each other rather than the jigsaw I was talking about. So it's much harder to say these are struggles which are kind of just London-centred, you know, these are international struggles. These are, you know, sort of wider than that. So I think it's a, it's harder to do this kind of book about the period after the war. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. One thing that I've noticed, having gone on a number of the walks, also as the illustrator of the maps in the book, mm. um, is just that the landscape of the city is, is obviously constantly changing. And even in the five years between the first and the second edition, you know, we've had to make small changes to the routes yeah. marked out in the maps. Now, as you say, you've been leading these walks for a lot longer than that. Just how different is the physical landscape of London today from when you began? Yeah, it's, it is. It's, it's changing all the time. And gentrification is pushing that. You really notice it around sort of Brick Lane, Spitalfields area. I mean, on Brick Lane itself, in the 1980s, for example, there were more than 40 Bengali restaurants. Now there's less than 20. It's not because people don't want Bengali food. There's a big demand for that. But some of those restaurants are now changed into estate agents. Some are changed into hipster barber shops. Uh, my favourite uh, restaurant has got one next door to it called the the Hairy Bastard. And uh, you know it's um, and there's also more upmarket 
range of restaurants which are competing there. But what you really notice also in the last few, last 10 years, 10, 15 years, is you hardly see any Bengali faces west of Brick Lane on the streets between Brick Lane and Spitalfields Market where there used to be lots of families mm. and people working. Um, they've all been pushed further east. Buildings get knocked down. These kind of soulless things go up which are either flats often remaining empty for a, quite a while as an investment or financial houses and something like the Whitechapel Art Gallery where a number of mm. my walks start that was deliberately put in the East End in an area of poor people because it was saying that art shouldn't be just for the wealthy but I think that's going to be incorporated into the city in in the next 10 years you know because everything's going to be sort of gentrified right up to that point yeah so that's where I see the see things uh, very starkly um there's plaques disappearing there's murals in danger you know in different areas of London and if something which indicates the radical history is taken away mm. you know something physical it's very hard to put something meaningful in its place again and that's partly my motivation for writing the book you know it's kind of restoration and resistance mm. i would perhaps try and bring you in here dan because yeah. the queer walking tours of london arguably is serving a similar purpose mm -hmm. yeah and i guess well first of all thank you for having us on the show chris is such a i've learned so much from you david and you know obviously you've been going so much longer queer tours started in 2017 and i can explain that but in terms of like restoration, reclamation, mm. reconnect with London, reconnect with our streets. What Ash says so beautifully at the front as well in terms of how we can win and how we can not let it be taken by the elite. I've learned so much from East End Walks. When Queer Tours started, I like up the ante and went on a few more East End Walks, went on some of the Occupy Tours, the Black History Tours, and went on some other radical tours who I knew that the tour guides were actively engaged in social struggles, revolutionary social struggles as well. So it wasn't just hypothetical or theoretical or or romanticising it. It was about how we can harness history as a propeller for action today. But back to your question about queer tours. We started in 2017 and it is interesting what you say about the different eras that we kind of focus on because we started because of the 1967 partial decriminalisation of homosexuality, the Sexual Offences Act obviously the 50th anniversary, 2017. And we started, the actual idea came about in um, in the smoker's corner of the Joiner's Arms, the former Joiner's Arms on Hackney Road, because we were all involved in stopping the slaughter of queer spaces. In the last five years, a third of London's queer spaces have been shut down. If you're looking at the Black Cap, if you're looking at Madame Jojo's, mm. if you're looking at the Georgian Dragon. And we were all so uh, exhausted with firefighting the closure of queer spaces, we, we were like, what can we do which is more comprehensive, more integrated, more empowering and financially supportive as well? Because similarly, how you started, the, the profits go to grassroots queer movements at the sharp end of the knife to continue the struggle. So that's how Queer Tools started, directly because of the loss of queer spaces. And so there's a lot of parallels mm. there. So I suppose, I mean, you've already kind of answered why you felt that it was needed to establish something like the Queer Tools of London. Mm -hmm. How long did it take from that first idea to the very first tour? Um, not long. I, I'm always being reminded to say that Queer Tours isn't just tours. It's events, it's protests, it's artistic interventions. Last night we had an exhibition. You might be able to tell that I'm actually covered in felt tip because I was on auction last night <laughs> at the Gay Liberation Front Blue Lips exhibition launch. Mm. And, and, and the, the birth of Queer Tours is very much connected with the Gay Liberation Front who were obviously born out of um, Stonewall uprisings, who started the first Pride to reclaim the radical roots of it that Pride started at the Gay Liberation Front, not Tesco. So, and that's obviously very much connected to the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation. Well, the first action that we did to launch the tours was very much related to what you were just saying about how we commemorate, who commemorates radical history. There aren't, by any stretch of the imagination, enough plaques acknowledging queer history and so with the demand for a permanent queer museum and a permanent queer community centre which there wasn't at the time we did a shout out for anyone wanting to build more queer history and made I think 20 pink cardboard boxes which said uh, we demand a home where is our queer museum and took them on street corners of iconic sites in London very much inspired by uh, Matt Holbrook's book Queer London and there was loads of press from that and all, a lot of the people who did that action then became tour guides. 
And just lastly, I guess it's, you know, when I was um, younger, when you find places like Gay's the Word or New Beacon Bookshop or Freedom Bookshop, it is like Narnia when, hmm. when and where that can lead you to in terms of what we say in Queer Tours rather than coming out, what are we coming into? And that changes the whole power dynamics of how history is told and how we are going to tell it. Yeah, I mean, interesting there mentioning gays the word because I talked about when I was um, a van driver delivering radical books around London. There's hardly any of those shops still in existence, but mm. gays the word is still one there. of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bookmarks is there, but it's not in Finsbury Park anymore. Yeah. It's in it's in Bloomsbury, Freedom, mm-hmm. and um, Houseman's, and I think that's it. And uh, New From, Beacon. Oh, oh, New Beacon. Yeah, mm. and yeah, yeah, yeah New Beacon, great one, Stroud Green, but. I can't think of any others that I used to deliver to that mm. are still there. Mm-hmm. And it was a really thriving radical culture, you know, in the in the sort of um, early 80s that got kind of smashed. You know, Upper Street, Islington. Mm. I don't go on there on one of my walks, but I'm not far from there on one of them. And, and Upper Street, Islington used to be a fairly desolate place. Mm. People don't realise this. Um, and it's really got gentrified over the last 30 years. Yeah. And uh, I used to have three stops on there on the van to deliver radical literature to a radical feminist bookshop, an independent that took quite a lot of radical stuff, and a Trotskyist bookshop. Mm-hmm. Um, the Trotskyist bookshop is now an estate agent. And oh, that tells oh, you everything oh. you need to know about. <laughs> the changes that have gone on in London. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I guess just one of the many things that have stood with me from your tours, so many things, but one is the the rawness and the vividness that you explain how London is changing, not in a kind of it's lost way, but like this is the stark nature of it. And it's basically how you explain the um, icebergs. Because I, I, have, <laughs> yeah. I live in yeah. Shadwell. I'm from, my family's from the same area originally, Petticoat Lane Market, and and it means the world to me. And when you explain the icebergs, the yeah. Canary Wharf and the city, yeah, and yeah, how it's going to eat everything up, yeah, yeah, no. And the the other one I use now quite a lot is because uh, sometimes when I'm in the East End doing a walk, I say to the group there, look, if we were playing word association, and I said East End, what mm. would you say? Mm. And sometimes they groups come back to me and they say criminals, yeah. So I tell them we're actually just on the border between the East End and the city. Yeah. I said, and the criminals are that way, pointing <laughs> to the city. And then I tell them how I know that because I told them I was on an anti-austerity march a few years ago. And as we were walking through the heart of the city, there was a police notice and it said, beware, thieves operate in this area. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thought, Don't they just? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but it's, you know, that, but the East End and the city have always had that sort of connection of being rubbing up against each other, yeah. you know, and, um, and that's why it's been a, a place of revolt. In a way, um, what I've found really interesting is getting to know and plan walks in places that I mm. re- really didn't know. Mm. I mean, um, I had quite a lot of walks north of the river, but none south of the river for quite mm. a while. And then I sort of was looking into the kind of radical history south of the river. And the places that really stood out were places I had very little connection with, well, a partial connection with. One was Bermondsey and one was Battersea. And they've got really sort of interesting people and campaigns, you know. Um, there's something called the Bermondsey Uprising, but very few people know about it, even in Bermondsey, except some of the older people. It was a, it was a women's strike in the ni- 1911 where 14,000 women came out on strike over a period of two days in 21 food processing and confectionery and jam-making factories. And they won considerable gains in a two-week strike among the sort of most exploited people who didn't have a union at the start of the um, the strikes. And so that's one of the things that I talk about there. So in much as I love the East End, it's also, it's been good to sort of get beyond that. And I suppose the places that you go to on, on your tours, you have to also sort of go far and wide. Yeah. yeah. And that is also one of my favourite things in terms of challenging yourself. And when you get a request to curate a tour in a new area, because of gentrification, marginalisation, institutional homophobia, all the other systematic reasons why people do not believe that there's either a radical and or a queer history. That's the challenge. And what we say is that every street, every building has a has a queer history by default, the fact that queers exist everywhere. And so, for example, when we were commissioned to do a, 
touring whopping. People are like, what's whopping got to do with queer history? But the lesbian and gay support, the print workers strike, mm. um, I think it was 1986, was a huge example of intersectional queer class solidarity. Or did another part of Whitechapel recently and in, uh, I think it's number, you know, the NatWest, I think it's 76. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just by Allgate East Station. That, at the beginning of the 18th century, was one of the most iconic Miss Muff Molly houses. Um, the kind of dens of, like, queer deviance and, and iniquity. Um, actually, one of the most famous ones is on the street next to here. Um, <laughs> when you're curating these and when you do the reckeys to walk from point A to B to C, you know, it's funny going into NatWest and being like, is this number 86? Do you have any idea what this building <laughs> used to be 250 years ago? Yeah. Or, like, my favourite was... Um, Gordon Ramsay's restaurant off Regent Street, that's where Oscar Wilde and people in the same era as Oscar Wilde used to go and pick up their boys and have fun downstairs. I'm like, you know what happened in your toilet? <laughs> and, it, and that's the best part yeah. when you, you... Because it's not just about reclaiming, it's like Ash says, it's, it's about reconnecting with a city which often you can feel is getting stolen. And, you know, if you're a lover of London, you, obviously we all know it keeps you on your toes. And they're for so many valid reasons and in, in unjust reasons, people are being moved out. So doing queer history and doing queer tours for the sake of continuing the struggle for freedom, it's a beautiful and brilliant way to like reclaim and, and be proud of what the city has been and can be. Yeah, and that thing about what places used to be and... Uh, one of the new chapters in the book, uh, Rebel Footprints, the new second edition, is about Fleet Street, which has always been a kind of place of publishing and printing, and that included the most radical incendiary words and the bastions of the right-wing establishment were all printing their stuff on Fleet Street. But around the middle of it is the most places that are connected with radical history. And until a few months ago, you had McDonald's and Starbucks next to each other. And the building above, I think it was Starbucks, actually, the building, the building above Starbucks, one floor of it was the workers' dreadnought, which emerged out of the women's dreadnought of the East London suffragettes, edited by Sylvia Pankhurst. One of the people she employed there was um, was Claude Mackay. Yeah. Uh -huh. So so one of the people she she employed was Claude Mackay, a gay black Jamaican who was here for a couple of years, and I believe one of the first black writers on 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 Fleet Street. And above that office, there was something called the PRIB, which was the People's Russian Information Bureau. And this is just in the wake of the Russian Revolution. And you can imagine that Times and Telegraph and other papers in Fleet Street were not so keen on the Russian Revolution. But this was a place where stuff was coming out of, of this building in Fleet Street that was giving an alternative view. It's some of those strange things about, you know, what is there now. Uh, also, I, I've occasionally tried to tell people that I've bumped into about a house they've just walked out of. You know, and I said, you know, and, and, and I've had good and bad experiences. Um, my, my good experience was in, um, well, they both actually were in Battersea. There was a man called John Burns who was one of the first socialist MPs in Britain. He got in in the same year as Keir Hardy in 1892 on a socialist platform. And before that, he'd set up a branch of the Social Democratic Federation, the first Marxist organisation in Britain. And he'd set it up in, the, in a room in his house. And um, well, the walk in Battersea stops outside that house and explains that. And I was doing a walk there in the summer last year, and it was quite a hot day. And there was this elderly woman who lived in the house who brought her chair out into the street like people used to do. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you know that this was where, and I explained about John Burns. And, and she was really amazed and really delighted mm. to know that. She felt really proud, proud of that. On the other hand, Battersea's first council housing estate, the Latchmere estate, has got all these amazing streets uh, with these names like Freedom Street. And, and I said, number one Freedom Street, that's the address I want. Yeah. And actually we stopped outside one Freedom Street and I was, and I was explaining that there was a... 
a couple who lived there where the woman was involved with the Battersea Women's Socialist Circle and the man who was there was involved in various uh, trade union things and there was a bloke just going into the house and I said, by the way, do you know... And he, he just wasn't interested <laughs> at all. He just, I think he just wanted me to go away, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you've got you to get on with people if you're walking in their streets. But, um, but some people want to be enlightened and others don't. Mm. In terms of the actual people that you've had come on your walks, like, yeah. have there been any memorable groups or individuals? Mm. I reckon I've taken about 3,000 people on the walks wow. since I've started. I mean, quite a lot of people come back to more after they've been on one, but I reckon it's about 3,000 discrete individuals. Of all ages, the youngest person who came on my walk was about three months, and I've promised uh, the parents that I'm going to test her on what she remembers about the Battle of Cable Street, which is about 10. Um, and, <laughs> and the oldest person um, was in her 90s, mm. came on a couple of walks in her 90s. Um, um, she's still alive. She's about 96, 97 now. Mm. And all people, all kinds of people in between. I've had people, quite a lot of people from different places in Europe, and I don't know if you've had that as well, mm. um, particularly in Europe from Holland, from Germany. I had one group from France who came over just for my walk. That was their only sole reason <laughs> oh, for coming wow. to London that weekend, and then they were going back. I thought they were coming for a, a whole weekend to do other stuff. Uh, but also I've learned stuff from a lot of stuff from people who come on the walks. People tell me sort of histories of people in their family and connections which I hadn't kind of quite known about. And and I don't just sort of um, take them and immediately put them in. I sort of do some more checking around, you mm. know, to verify all these things. And that's been really, really useful. And it's 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 amazing when, when, when that happens. Mm. Have you had the same? Oh, so many. In terms of, you know, just last night, for example, we... Um, we had a group from Georgia, um, a black queer group from Georgia. And what we always emphasise is the context of recent queer history in 1967, the sexual offences, what I was talking about last night, the Gay Liberation Front, were formed out of the women's liberation and the black power movements. And so it's always contextualising it in all the struggles are connected. And um, with what's going on in Georgia, in America, with the abortion bans, with the suppression of queer rights, etc., it was looking at the parallels of American radical history and British radical history and we started off at Gaze the Word and took them to the Blue Lips exhibition they were drawing on my arm and they were like I want to start a Gaze the Word when I get home yeah. and I want to start a radical feminist bookshop when I get home stuff like that because you know how real it is with what's going on with Trumpism at the moment that is an example We've had people from Russia, we've had people from Uganda where it's death penalty who come to London, then connect with other groups who are also part of the global struggle for queer freedom. And it also really challenges what's called homonormativity or uh, the British superiority complex that we've got it right. When in fact, we started the problem with the 1533 Buggery Act, which is where homophobic legislation in Britain started, was actually exported through the British Empire, one of our most successful exports. And now we see the ripple effects all over the world with people fleeing homophobic persecution. If they get back to the UK and aren't put into detention centres, then then we see the, the, the root cause of the problem, right? And so it challenges British thinking of, well, we've got it right. It's like, no, we need to help stop in the right way what we started. So when you get Russian and Ugandan groups who talk about, well, we've got a queer community centre in our city even though it's death penalty and you don't even have a permanent queer art centre or a permanent queer museum, we've only just got our first queer homeless shelter. It challenges us. Just a few other last examples. We hook the kind of year's programmes on a key significant political date. So 2017, the Sexual Offences Act, 50th anniversary. 2018 was very much commemorating the 30th anniversary of the beginning of Section 28, which obviously banned the promotion of homosexuality in public institutions. And one of my favourite tools was with one of the legends who was one of the abseiling lesbians who abseiled into the Houses of Lords <laughs> just the day before, um, on, on, I think it was Clothesline, um, <laughs> to challenge Section 28 and to be next to that person who, and I'm a Section 28 baby, I started yeah. school the year it started and finished college the year it finished, to be next to that person. And then or to we've done AIDS, HIV and AIDS activism history tours of London. In fact, we've done them on a bus. Mm. We did that on World AIDS Day because we also do bus tours. To be with them and to talk about the dying protests they did at Trafalgar Square, and if we're looking at the context of the healthcare and the NHS about what that activism means and how it how it's so important now, 
it's just it's just so surreal and such an honour. But then just one last example on a, just a everyday interpersonal level, because you've got the big themes, you've got the big struggles. But then when you get, for example, I remember just a mum and a son came on a tour and the mum just started crying at the end because she was like, I had no idea. A what your history was about, obviously because of Section 28 and institutional homophobia, she was like, I have no idea where queer culture, what it's all about, where it's from, what this means to you. And for, and obviously familial homophobia is the first kind of cultural ground that people experience homophobia a lot. So for someone as close to really re-engage and see the gravity of this situation was really beautiful. Mm. So going to school at the beginning of Section 28, yeah. Section 28 didn't work. In, in no. you're, you're, you're running queer tours yeah. of London. You know. It's a revenge um, project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, but what you were saying there also reminded me of um, anniversaries are, are really important and you can connect walks up and I make some references to anniversaries in, in the book, like, for example, Mary Rosamay Billinghurst, Rosamay Billinghurst, who was... Uh, leader of the Greenwich Suffragettes, who was in a wheelchair because she was paralysed from when she was five months old. But that didn't stop her going on every demonstration she could. And she was very brutally pulled out of her wheelchair in November 1910 on a demonstration and treated terribly by the police. And it was almost 100 years to the day after that happened to Rosa May Billinghurst. Jodie McIntyre was in a wheelchair um, suffering cerebral palsy. And he was, and they were in the same place, you know, around Parliament Square. And he was sort of pulled out very brutally from his wheelchair. But the difference was his was videoed, yeah. you know, and it went viral. Making these connections between things that happen, you know, um, I talk in the book about a demonstration in 1833 where the police kettled the demonstrators and then attacked them, mm. you know, it's those kind of things. But going back also to anniversaries, a walk I did in recent weeks and then which related to one I did a few years ago, and it's since, since 2013, there's been a Match Women's Festival mm. in the East End mm. uh, run by a friend of mine, Louise Raw, who did a brilliant book called Striking a Light about the Match Women. And on the first festival that she did in, in 2013, I offered to do a walk for it, but I only had an hour for it. And I was trying to get around as many places as I could in an hour to talk about the social and economic and political struggles in the year 1888 when the match strike happened. And we were walking through from the Bishopsgate Institute to, on our way towards uh, Spitalfields Market and Brick Lane. And we stopped at one point and one of the newer residents of the area put his head out the window and said, could you please move on? We're doing a lot of these walks around here. Oh. And sometimes I might feel like answering him, but I only had an hour. So I said, oh, all right, we're going to move around the corner. And I carried on there. What I didn't know till after the end of the walk was that my partner, Julia, was at the back of the walk and had shouted up to him, fuck off, bourgeoisie, your days are numbered. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, um, but um, more recently, it's been the, the Match Women's Festival again wow. this year, just mm. a few weeks ago. And I was asked to do a walk. The festival was starting at two o'clock in the afternoon, I did a walk between one and two. The festival was very near where the match factory was. So I did a walk from Bow Road Station to end up at the festival via the match factory, um, which is now a gated community. So we oh, were outside, we were outside the, with the factory. But there were two people on that walk who didn't know each other. Both of them were great-granddaughters of people on the strike committee of mm. the match strike mm. in 1888. And, um, and there's a famous picture of that strike. It's the meeting where they form a union. And you've got Annie Besant in the middle of it, a guy called Herbert Burroughs, who was a trade union activist. And then you've got the match women, the strike committee members, the, the workers at the factory on either side. And we reenacted that photo because in the photo, the great-grandmother of one of them was this side of Annie Besant. The great-grandmother of the other one was on, was on this side. Mm. And so, um, so, we, so I've got a photo now with the match factory in the background mm -mm. Um, with, these, with these two women who were directly connected, you know, through, through family. And they had never met each other mm. before. I mean, that's, that's been one of the most amazing things that's happened on yeah. my walks. Yeah. There's obviously anniversaries are plenty within the book. And the resonance, I guess, that 
I suppose with things like the far right on the rise today, mm. I mean, there's so many stories and struggles from within the book that, that must stick out for you as feeling especially pertinent or sort of resonating especially with the moment we're in. Is there anything that kind of comes to mind, I suppose, that's important for socialists or anti-racists today yeah. to be mindful of from the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I talk in the chapter on the Battle of Cable Street uh, what I talk about quite a bit is anti-fascist strategy and some of the arguments over that. People like Phil Paratin uh, in the Communist Party who believed it, it wasn't going to be solved through one big demonstration. It was a patient struggle. And what he said was really important that fascism is the problem rather than fascists because fascists are often people who are frustrated angry, fed up with their situation, who feel let down by all the politicians, and they run to the flag of fascism because fascism presents itself, somebody saying, you know, I will make the country great again, I will put people back to work and all that, make you feel good about yourselves again. And, you know, that can be very kind of mesmerising for them in a, in a moment where they feel very alienated from a lot of things around them, you know. And we see that with, you know, the, the way Trump got elected and we see the far right in a number of countries in Europe, you know, using that populist nationalism and racism. Um, but against that, you also had, I mentioned in the book, Joe Jacobs, who was advocating a much more physical approach. But Paratin was saying you can knock one down, but then two will get up. And to bring out some of those strategic arguments, we've, we still struggle with those mm. strategic arguments uh, today. I think in the 1930s, the anti-fascist movement was much better at turning fascists away from fascism and some of them into active anti-fascism. And I think, you know, that, that's something we need to explore. But also I noticed that when I have Americans coming on my walk, normally I'm talking to them about Oswald Mosley for about a couple of minutes and one of them will say, Trump. <laughs> and, and I'll look at my watch and I'll say, mm, that took you two and a half minutes. There's some people, are, I, t I had a walk last week where they got it in one and a half minutes. Yeah. You know, but it's, and, and also it, it, Farage, I mean, Farage, certainly studied Mosley, I reckon, yeah, you know, yeah. he, he, he knows about how to work with charisma and sort of push certain buttons in, in exactly the way that, that Mosley did. They had very different views on economics. I mean, mm. you know, Farage's um, kind of view of the free market is like Thatcherism on steroids, you mm. know, whereas Mosley was much more interventionist in the economy and all that. But in every other respect, their nationalism and the sort of menace and the racism, you know, it's it's kind of, um, but also it's sort of pretending to be one of the people as well when neither of them were, mm. both of them extremely sort of moneyed people. I mean, I want I want those echoes to be heard, you know, when I'm when I'm when I'm doing the walks, when people read the book, I want them to think, yeah, these are this is what is happening um, today. Mm. Just talking about Farage, um, Farage. Um, <laughs> our, um, our video actually, we've recently got it back from the police and the lawyers, so we can actually release it of when we invaded Nigel Farage's pub. This was 2015, so just before Queer Tools, but um, very much a kind of overlap of different like connected activist movements which became stronger because of this action which led to queer tours etc March 2015 we invaded Nigel Farage's pub four years ago now four and a half years ago and it was I think my favourite action I've been lucky enough to be involved in because if we're looking at connected histories we did it on the 70th anniversary of the official end of the Nazi Holocaust and I say uh -huh. official because we know that war doesn't end when the establishment says it does and one of the groups involved was Never Again Ever which was a campaign led by grandchildren of the Nazi Holocaust which which I am grandparents coming to the East End working in Petticoat Lane I'm sure there's lots of overlaps with our families and seeing the parallels of what was going on then and what was going on now and, you know, he, Farage was always saying, I'm a man of the people, you can come and visit me in my pub. And we're like, all right then, we'll, <laughs> we'll bring all the people who you are being bigoted against and have a cabaret, just like the Weimar era, in your pub and see how you like that. And it was, for the months up beforehand, it was so fun. Like, instead of like big, sitting at home sad and depressed about all the horrible bigoted things he was saying, we took them and flipped them into parodies. So, for example, when uh, he said he was... Um, he didn't like hearing all the international voices on the train from Manchester to London. So Chinese groups, Arabic groups, Polish groups all had language classes on the different pub tables. We had a Holocaust survivor opening there, Ruth Barnett. Mm. I love Ruth. Yeah. O opening up their ceremony, opening up the cabaret. 
when he was late for a meeting in Wales, he blamed the traffic on the M4 on migrants. Yeah. He had a migrant traffic jam at the front of the pub. <laughs> you know the whole UKIP mm. weather scandal? Yeah, yeah. When gay marriage was introduced, it was bad weather, and he said it was, UKIP said it was a sign from God. So we had loads of queer activists singing um, It's Raining Men at the front of the pub, mm. and loads of other things, and then ended up doing a conga line around the pub singing We Are Family. And actually, it was such an inspirational action where, you know, we were talking about the echoes of it, of fascism is is real, it's so mm. real. And this is why through actively, whether it's walking tours, bus tours, or just generally getting out from being sad or depressed at home, the gravity of how bad fascism is now getting again and saying, let's take over the streets, let's respond like Julia mm. did to say, actually, no, <laughs> don't think you can you can tell us who can walk on these yeah, streets yeah. And, and fight back. And and it's very, very occasionally there's people who are sort of rude to me, you know, when I'm when I'm doing a tour, think I'm sort of invading their space, which they've decided they own, not just the, the yeah. house they've paid millions for, but they have the pavement as well. And, oh, uh, yeah. You know, but um, it's always such a surprise who you meet. I do three or four walks a month, um, which are scheduled, and you never know where people are politically. I normally do one or two gags early on which are political to sort of <laughs> test the water um, and uh, and notice what kind of reactions they have to them but I don't sort of compromise my politics in any way um, even if I know there's some people that are right of centre if you like on, on the walk you know I sort of take the view mm. well they may not be radicals before they come to the walk but hopefully they will be <laughs> after the walk and it's so important that a not preaching to the converted but talking yeah. about yeah. how space can be used how it has been stolen how it's been co-opted and you know building consciousness like that I guess what you were saying about the the characters um, one of my favourite characters that we that we met in, and she she coined a phrase that has just never left my head so one of the um, events that we did we've now done three of them uh, this is my culture party to um, celebrate George Michael um, obviously when he died December 25th it was 2016 mm. and you know obviously Behind the scenes, he financially supported so many queer and HIV and AIDS groups. But, you know, he's very much about celebrating and being defiant about sexual freedom and cottaging and cruising. And so it's a party to celebrate cottaging, cruising, sexual freedom, not just for gay men, but for all marginalised communities in Hampstead Heath. And we had this woman who, who she was just walking her dog. And so it's basically a, a free party in the words celebrating mm. sexual freedom. She was just walking her dog through the woods and you know what it's like when you're a free party and you spot a jogger or someone walking their dogs you're like oh how's this gonna work and she came up she's like can I take to the mic and we're like yeah of course she was like I am so she was very posh she was like I'm so glad you're all here I knew George Michael very well while walking in the woods he was a brilliant guy an inspirational man have a great party just make sure you pick up your sex litter <laughs> and I was like sex litter wow um, and then she joined in the party um, yeah. which is great fun which is great mm. fun so you, you meet amazing characters like that but in terms of like the power of tools my favourite tours are ones which are actions in themselves as well which mm -hmm. not just challenge the punters the participants on the tour but ourselves so my favorite tour is a disability justice tour mm -hmm. uh, where josh kevin other of our queer tour guides who one of their specialities is disability justice so for example josh and kevin are both in wheelchairs and not one queer space in the whole of central London, barely in the whole of London, whether that's a bar, a club, a community space, is fully accessible. Even the term fully accessible is something which you can unpack as well. And yet we're talking about pride and we're talking about gay liberation, but you can't even get in the door. And it's a requirement of the 1992 Equalities Act. Mm. So essentially we did a, a tour slash intervention down Old Compton Street, talked about the history and the, and the current lived realities of being queer and disabled and marginalised by society and spoke to bar managers all down the route and said, you know, what are you going to do? And Josh had this wicked sign was like, I'd love to fuck in your toilets if only I could get in. Um, <laughs> brilliant. And some of the bar managers, you know, it's, it's, it's 2019, it's Stonewall Uprising yeah. and yet you can't... Anyway, don't, I'm going to go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and some of them have done some great work. They've You shouldn't give them too much credit because actually they should be doing it by law, but it's difficult because of the structure of the building and there's not funding for it, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, some of them have got ramps now. Some of them have changed their whole door system, their toilets. 
and have done some great work. Some are just like stubborn and complacent and, and bigoted. But you can see that actually it really does create changes there and then, but still so much to go. But they're my favourites where the tools actually challenge ourselves and say, whilst you're doing them. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay. So um, on my website, which is eastendwalks.com, I normally put up my next four or five walks at a time, sort of update it every few weeks. I can't tell you the exact dates, but I know that soon I'm doing one about Islington's radical history. Um, I'm doing one about the Russian Revolution and the East End. And I'm doing one about women of the radical Jewish East End. Uh, they're ones that are coming up soon. I'll also be doing some of the ones that my South London walks, which I haven't had a chance to do earlier this, this year. I'm going to be doing them in the autumn. And occasionally I'm sort of um, doing walks for different festivals. There's a festival called the Right Idea Festival in Whitechapel every year. And I'll be doing a special walk around Brick Lane. That's sometime in mid, mid-November. Mm. How about you, Dan? Um, a lot of the focus of next year, but I can talk about the things that we've got before next year, is if we're looking talking about anniversaries, like we were saying before, is um, so next year, 2020, is the 50th anniversary of the formation of the Gay Liberation Front. Mm. And Stuart and Andrew and others have led to the queer tours before talking about the actions which they did. For example, the protest against um, the psychiatric books which said gayness was a disease, which is unfortunately now on the rise again, and talking about that protest there, or where they started the Radical Street Theatre protest outside Bow Street Magistrate Court. Anyway, it's, it's a whole series of tours being led by the Gay Liberation Front to truly acknowledge and celebrate who started Pride. And within that context, absolute freedom for all, whose story's still not being told by any stretch of the imagination in terms of LGBT migrants, like Maz leads our queer Bangladeshi Whitechapel tours, which which isn't niche, because if we're looking at LGBT migration, etc., Maz actually fled persecution from Bangladesh and, and now is setting up the London Queer Bangladeshi Network. So that's another one to, to look forward to. But we've got lots of other LGBT migrant being one of, if you're talking about the context of rising fascism, one of the most pertinent issues on a whole, with a whole range of communities across a whole range of places in London. We've, we've got our standard tours like Brixton, Hackney, Soho, special theme tours, disability, trans, LGBT migrant, gay liberation front. We're also deepening and, and um, developing our lesbian history tours. Mm. Partly, if we're looking at the discrepancy of whose history is told between LGBTQIA+, also the 150% rise in LGBT hate crime, that the picture of the lesbian couple who were beaten up on the bus the other day. So it's really deepening developing the lesbian history series. And also, if you want, like we were saying before, I want to get a request to develop a queer history tour of Croydon, or like we recently did Earl's Court, which has an incredible fetish leather history or wherever. Just like if you're in a part of London and you don't know any queer people and you want to say, come to Enfield. Actually, we did one in Enfield, which was great. But whatever your part of London, we can do that. And that's actually my favourite mm. thing to do. But for tourists who are coming in, we've got the template tours, but also special theme tours. And we'll have lots more special events. Like I was saying before, the other special event is like the Bang Boat and the Bang Bus. Just when you're doing walking tours, you've got to be careful to curate them so it makes sense politically, chronologically, geographically and practically. And if we're looking at absolute freedom for all, walking tours are actually quite inaccessible. And you've also got to make sure that, you know, you try and do it where there's not too much traffic, etc. Mm. So that's why we're increasingly trying to find other ways to do tours. And there are only a few buses which you can hire, mm. which are wheelchair accessible. But we've done queer nightlife tours, History of London, we've done the HIV AIDS one on a bus called the Bang Bus in tribute to Club Bang in Tottenham Court Road, which is one of the legendary queer clubs of the 80s and 90s. We'll be doing more of them, but one thing I'm excited about is the Bang Boat as well, mm. um, doing a queer history of the Thames. Mm. And actually we can have a lot of fun where we stop the boat outside House of Parliament, etc. Mm. So there, yeah, also watch out for the not walking tours. Mm. And you have a website? Queertoursoflondon.com. Brilliant. I've got one last question. We don't yeah, even yeah. have to answer. It's just something I want to fling out there. Um, I went for a run this morning and I went past Stephen and Matilda's plaque in Wapping. 
um, and their estate was one of the first renters-led estates in the 80s, I think. And, you know, the question is, what leads us, whether it's radical women's or anti-fascist or queer history, what leads us to get out of bed every morning and do that? And I know we've got similar-ish backgrounds when it comes from having a history of Jewish migration, coming from I don't, coming from persecution, etc. And it's about belonging. It's about seeking the truth. It's about not accepting mm. bullshit, essentially, and saying that things can be different. Or, you know, one of the spirits that really influences me is the banality of evil. If Hannah Arendt's mm. concept that we don't want to be complicit in gentrification or growing fascism, etc. So the question is, and maybe this is another show, but like, as radical historians, tour guides, what is it, if you could say, like, what is it really, is the deeper thing that gets you out of bed mm, in the morning? Yeah. Uh, I mean, something which in the book, I uh, it, it celebrates the role that migrants have played uh-huh. in, in that history. And I think it's no accident that migrants have had a, a really big role in that. It's because people who come from situations of discrimination and persecution you know, they really feel very strongly that that sort of drive towards equality. And particularly sort of in East London, many people who were writing about East London were saying that it's like a defeated population there, the people that have been there for generations and generations, and they've tried to sort of challenge things and then been beaten back. But the migrant input, whether it was mm. Irish, Jewish, later Bangladeshi, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's people that have really felt that sort of drive for equality very kind of viscerally, you know, yeah. uh, in themselves, and that's and that's come out in in their sort of uh, political practice. So mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I do acknowledge that as one of the driving forces uh, within within myself that, mm. that's got me sort of uh, on this road, mm. literally on this road. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, brilliant. Well, we've run out of time here, but you could talk all day, so um, yeah, I'm going to have to wrap it up. But uh, thank you both very much, David and Dan, for coming in. There's yeah, loads for people to go and get involved in. Uh, we've also got an offer on David's book, Rebel Footprints, for the next month. We'll do 50% off on that. Uh, you just go onto our website, which is plutobooks.com, and you can use the code PODCAST at the checkout. That'll give you the 50% off. Uh, You've been listening to Radicals in Conversation. We'll be back next month as ever. So thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.